If you would, please join me in turning to Acts chapter 14. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. It's not just a habit to pray, to ask for God's help in understanding and applying his word. Um, It's not just a habit. It's not just a good routine. Uh, We really are desperately dependent upon the Lord to open our eyes and open our ears. So let's go to him in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that indeed creation reveals your glory. But we thank you also, Father, that your word reveals your glory as well and gives us a proper understanding of creation. Oh, Father, be pleased to open our minds and hearts to the truth before us today, that we would be indeed transformed by the renewing of our mind, that we would, as a result of meeting you through your word by your spirit, that we would be able to more and more do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with you. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. When you hear the expression, the power of God, when you hear the expression, the power of God, what comes to mind immediately? Five, four, three, two, one, done. Do you have an answer? Well, some of us may have thought about political power, some military power, others economic power, some form of social power. You know, those are all forms of human power. I want us to go first to two places in the Bible that speak not of human power, but rather of divine power, the power of God. First, in Mark chapter 12, for those of you with us a long time ago, we went through uh, the gospel according to Mark and we got into chapter 12 And Jesus was being questioned by the the Sadducees, not the Pharisees this time, but the Sadducees. And they were a group of religious folk who kind of didn't mind the Roman rule so much. And uh, they were kind of the, they were wanting to trap Jesus. And they asked him a question about this man who had all these, why he died and uh, uh, another man married his wife and another man. And the question was asked, well, who's? At the resurrection, you know, who, whose wife will she be? And, and he answers this question uh, in verse 24. Jesus said to them, that is to the Sadducees, is not the reason you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Jesus was not afraid to tell people they were wrong. They were wrong because they knew neither the scriptures nor the power of God. That's the first place I want us to go. The second place is in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Most of us have heard this verse, thought about it, been encouraged by it, challenged by it, maybe convicted by it. But Romans 1.16, Paul, the apostle, you know, the one who had persecuted the church is now the one planting churches, Suffering for the sake of the gospel, Paul says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is what? 
the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The power of God for the salvation of all who believe, Jew and Greek, Jew and Gentile. And with that in mind, the second reference, let's turn to the book of Acts. The book of Acts is that selective record of all that Jesus continued to do and teach. It's that orderly account that Luke began in Luke 1.1. He continued in Acts. It's there to inform our faith, to strengthen our faith. Acts, just by its very name, reminds us that Christianity is grounded in the acts of God in history. It holds us back to the truth of the historic Christian gospel. It also pushes us forward as that hymn we just sang. It pushes us forward into our neighborhoods, into our communities. It pushes us forward to the ends of the earth. And speaking of the ends of the earth, that's one way to look at Acts. It's structured geographically. Where did Acts start? Jerusalem. Where is it headed? To Rome. It's a movement from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, which at that moment and time would be Rome. You can see it also personally. It was Peter first and then Paul. The first, what, eight or nine chapters are, are Peter focused. And the last half, the second part is, is Paul, as it were, focused. And demographically, it moves as it moves from Jerusalem to Rome, as it moves from Peter's ministry to Paul's ministry, it moves from Jew to Gentile. And so what we see in Acts is, is the gospel going out to two kinds of people, those with the witness of the scriptures and those without the witness of the scriptures, those Jews and those Gentiles. Now, before we move into our text today, let's review for a moment uh, verse 3 of chapter 14, that the gospel is the word of his grace. The word of his grace. Now, where are they right now? Where are they? Well, as, as we saw last week, they were in Iconium. But this week, at the end of last week, we see them move to Lystra and then Derby. We see that in verse 6. And I'm going to get back to verse 3, but I, I want to lay the the area out here first. Now, where is this city of Lystra? It's 18 miles south southwest of Iconium. It's an insignificant village compared to Iconium. It's not a cultural cosmopolitan place. It's kind of a backwater place. It's insignificant, but it's a Roman outpost nonetheless. Now, why? Why is or Paul and Barnabas in Lystra? Well, of course, they fled to Lystra. Why? To escape death, to avoid being killed. And, and what are they doing in Lystra? Look with me in verse 7. And there they continued to preach the gospel. They continued to preach the gospel. We'll see that there's no local synagogue in Lystra. There's, there's just pagan Gentiles there for an audience. So they're continuing to preach the gospel. Let's back up to verse 3. The gospel is the word of his grace. At the center of our narrative account last week in Iconium, at the beginning and end, verse 1 and verse 7, is, is speaking and preaching. And at the center is the word of his grace. It's Luke's shorthand way 
of talking about the gospel, and it's maybe there to reflect the prominence of grace in Paul's message. And think about thus far in Acts, when the, when the apostles preach the gospel, what do we hear? The life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, over and over again. The life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, and the call to repentance and faith. Join with me now as I read, beginning in verse 8 through 20. So they're in Lystra, and they're continuing to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. I want to stop there. I want to stop there. And I want to continue, actually. We'll stop there in just a moment. And when the crowds saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But the Jews from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded The crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. Now in Luke's summary narrative account of the life, excuse me, of the ministry of Paul and Barnabas in Syria, in Lystra, we will see that the power of God is at work. We'll see the power of God first displayed, then misunderstood And finally, proclaimed. So let's look at verses 8 through 10, the power of God displayed through a healing miracle. This miracle that Paul performs uh, follows the pattern of the ministry of Jesus. Jesus went about his fulfillment of the promise to open blind eyes, to unstop deaf ears, to cause the lame to leap. And we see that in Isaiah 35. We read earlier in Acts, when describing the ministry of Jesus, we read this. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. So Paul is following the pattern of Jesus. But this healing miracle is very similar to the ministry of Peter to the Jews we see in Acts 3. Remember the Jewish lame man sitting outside the temple in Jerusalem. 
And here is this Gentile lame man sitting somewhere in Lystra, crippled from birth. You know, the, it's very similar. You see Peter looking at the man. You see Paul looking at the man. You, you see somehow they're given the ability to see faith is present and they command them to get up. And miraculously, they get up, they are healed. And yet we'll notice in a moment that the observer of this miracle, just like the observers, the observers of the previous miracle with Peter mistakenly attribute these miraculous powers to the apostles themselves. You see here, what's being displayed is, is God's power through what can, can be seen. It's a, it's a miracle. It, it, it's confirming the authority of, of the one doing the miracle. It's strengthening the faith of those who believe. The miracle is a sign. It's pointing to a deeper reality. It's a visible portrayal of an invisible power and reality. One uh, commentator in Acts, uh, G. Campbell Morgan, said this, granted the, first, granted the truth of the first verse in the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Given that, there is no difficulty with the miracles. And so we see the power of God displayed through Peter performing this healing miracle. Now events, and in this case, a miraculous healing, they need to be interpreted correctly in order for the unseen truth behind what is seen to be known. However, as we will see, and as we heard, there is a big misunderstanding. You see, the power of God is displayed, but here we see that the power of God is misunderstood or misinterpreted. Verses 11 through 13. How did the people respond? Well, in Acts 3, they attributed the miracle to, to Peter's work. And, and, and Simon the magician, remember in chapter 8, he thinks he can get some of this power too. He wants to buy it. Now, the miracle in Jerusalem incited hostility of the Jews. And here, what, what's incited is a confrontation with pagan religion and superstition. You see, as we, as we heard, the people that saw this miracle, they identified Barnabas as Zeus, the king of the gods, the king of the Greek gods. They identified Paul as Hermes, the, the messenger of the gods. Now, this is most likely due to, to an ancient local legend. Uh, the Roman poet Ovid, uh, writing about 50 years before Paul and Barnabas were in Lystra, um, uh, recorded uh, the story uh, of what took place there. And he, he was using the Roman names for the gods Jupiter and Mercury. And what he said happened was uh, Jupiter and Mercury, or here Zeus and Hermes, were traveling incognito, unrecognized. They were traveling as men. They were seeking shelter in this region of what is now Turkey. And they, they were looking for a place to stay and a thousand homes refused them but then one couple invited them in provided hospitality an older couple and uh, Zeus and Hermes transformed their shack their cottage into a temple and made them priest and then took them and moved their house up to a high hill and then they got to see the flood that destroyed all thousand homes of the inhospitable people Therefore, 
the lesson was learned that when Zeus and Hermes walked the earth in human form, they were to be welcomed warmly and sacrificially. That explains things. Uh, Look, again, and when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in Lyconian, that that, uh, local language, the gods have have come down to us in the likeness of men. They called one Zeus, the other Hermes, and then, and we don't know how much time has taken place, but the word gets to the priest of, this, uh, of, of uh, the Zeus's temple, and he, he brings out sacrifices, and he wants to offer sacrifices because the gods have come and visited them. And that explains things, doesn't it, of their reaction. Now, before we move on, I think we see in our text uh, two temptations not just for pagan Gentiles, to see men and think that they are gods. But you know, that's a temptation for us as well as Christians. It's a temptation for the church of all time and and especially today. And the first temptation is this, to, to view people as gods. I mean, think about where we are today. We, we look to man for what can only be found in God. We, we think that this person in office or that person in office or this person not in office or that person not in office or this person on this team or that person on that. We, 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 we view people, although we may not consciously say it, we, we, we give them divine attributes. We, we, we are tempted to worship people. It's a temptation for everyone, non-Christian and Christian. And, and the second temptation, I think, is this. It, it's to strive after earthly power. Because these gods are going to be powerful and they're going to do things. And you're going to think, wow, if, if we just had power, look at what we could make happen. If we just had this, it's, it's seeking and striving after earthly power, what we can see, what we can touch. But remember what Jesus said, his kingdom is not of this world. Remember Jesus, before his uh, arrest, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, I would have my disciples fight and defend me. No, that is not the kingdom of God. That is the kingdom of man. And Jesus is king of his kingdom. So two temptations that we can even see in what's taking place in Lystra. To view people as gods and to seek and to strive after earthly power. Well, Paul and Barnabas respond not only in what they immediately say and do, but what they go on to declare in more detail. We will see that Paul goes on to declare the gospel to the Greeks, to the Gentiles. So we see the power of God proclaimed in verses 14 through 18. Look at the immediate response of Paul and Barnabas. Look what they do and look what they say. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, that is, that they are about ready to receive sacrifices on their behalf, when they heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news. Let me stop there. They they tore their clothes to express dismay over blasphemy of worshiping mere men as gods. 
They insisted that they were merely human, that they shared a common life with these other men and women. They, they identify, we're men just like you, and yet we bring you good news, good news from somewhere else, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. Here's the call of the gospel, the call to repent and believe. Um, what are you doing, they say? Why are you doing these things? And they're going to say, well, here's what we're doing. We're going to tell you what we're doing. We're going to bring you good news from the living God. He goes, they go on to give people instruction on the true nature of God. You see, when Peter preached in Pisidian Antioch, see, Paul preached in Pisidian Antioch earlier, he could use Jewish history. He could use the history of Israel. He could use the scriptures. He can't hear. He's among a people who have no scripture. All he is going to do is say, look around. Look around. He begins where they are and asks them to consider, in light of that, what are you doing? Because he goes on, as we read in verse 15, he speaks of the God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. It's the witness of creation, the witness of creation. And in just a moment, we will see where he says he, he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Here's the witness of what Westminster Shorter Catechism number eight would say are the works of creation and providence. You see, nature, creation, should have led these men to recognize the existence, the power, and the goodness of the Creator. God's greatness, His power seen in creation, but also His goodness, His providence, the rain He gives, the food He provides, the gladness He brings. See, Paul is going to argue that this general revelation through nature doesn't save. But there is a revelation of God in Jesus Christ that does save. Before we go on, this reminds me of just that great prayer that I learned as a child. Even before I knew Jesus, I heard this at the dinner table, and I used to think it was trivial. Now I think it's incredibly profound. You've heard the blessing. The prayer, right? God is great and God is good. Let us thank him for our food. God is great. He's the creator. He's powerful. God is good. He is providentially providing all that you and I need. So the witness of creation and providence is before these men who have no witness of scripture. And Paul says, yes, times have changed. He'll say this more and more in Acts chapter 17 when we get to his time in Athens. But he is saying that the times of ignorance are over. In the past, what did we say? In the past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk their own ways. But he's saying now something has changed. The times have changed. Something momentous has happened, has 
occurred. Again, that change from the past to the present, the change from the times of ignorance to being over and the times of of God's revelation through Jesus are are here and it's good news. It's, It's this new phase of God's gracious revelation to people now including the Gentiles. You see, the gospel is for both Jew and Gentile because both Jew, and that would be the moral, religious person, and Gentile, the immoral, irreligious person, they all have ways of trying to save themselves. But Peter and Paul and others are declaring, no, 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 there's only one way of salvation. It's through Jesus The times have changed. And even after they heard that, they still wanted to sacrifice. It's going to take not just the words about the heavens and the earth and the food and the gladness. No, it's going to be, as Rob said, a heart has to change. Their hearts have to change. So here we are in Bellevue, Kentucky. The Lord has provided this building. We didn't see it coming. Here it is. And who is around us? You know, it's interesting as I walk the neighborhood, I keep running into uh, former church buildings in Bellevue. Former church buildings. And, And so there's probably people in Bellevue that have some knowledge of the scriptures, some experience with some kind of organized Christianity. But you know, with all the buildings that are closed, there's probably more and more and more people around us who have no knowledge of God, who are ignorant of the Scriptures. You see, when Paul preached to the Jews, he went straight to the Scriptures and showed how Jesus is the fulfillment. When he preaches to the Gentiles, he starts with what they can see. Creation, nature, beauty, common life. He varied his approach. He varied his emphasis. Um, They didn't know the scriptures, but they knew the natural world and they could see the natural world. And, And we, as a church, as individuals, we need to learn from Paul's flexibility. There's no liberty to edit or change the good news. It's unchangeable. It's the gospel of salvation through Jesus. But... We adapt it. We have a point of contact. We have common ground. And wherever we begin, we hop on a road that eventually leads to Jesus. Those of you that know me a little bit know that I like to talk to people. And I like to quickly find out who they are, where they're from, what they do, how they got here. Because I am looking for common ground with them. I hope you're looking for common ground with people also. Because it's a great way to build a bridge. It's a great way to build a friendship. It's a great way to build a relationship on which you can travel back and forth and come to the time when you can explain that their hopes and dreams and desires can only be met in Jesus. This building was not closed. This building was not sold and turned into a community center or condominiums. This building was not destroyed. 
What kindness God has for us. What kindness for the people of Bellevue to have a witness of the gospel right in the middle of this river town. God is providential, is he not? Well, how did this proclamation of the good news go? You remember from Luke chapter 4, Jesus announced he was there to proclaim good news. And how did it go? They wanted to kill him. Hmm. Well, among the irreligious, we'll see in verse 20 that some became disciples. But among the religious, the Jews, they followed up on their threat to stone Paul. How? By stoning him. Let's read verses 19 and 20 again. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. Paul is left for dead. The misguided zeal of the Jews, the fickleness of the crowds. I mean, one day they try to sacrifice to these men as gods. And then they join in stoning him as if he was a convicted felon. The plot that had been frustrated at Iconium succeeded at Lystra. You see, opposition to the gospel will not stop until... It won't stop until it's fully and finally stopped. And that day is coming. And I'm very thankful for that, as you are as well. And as I mentioned, there's some disciples. So the good news did break through. Some became followers of Jesus and, and, and they came out following them. They, they, they gathered around him. What did they do? Were they praying? Were they grieving? We don't know, you know, Paul in 2 Corinthians and in 2 Timothy, Paul writes of being stoned. It's this incident in Lystra. He writes of bearing the marks of Jesus to, when he writes Timothy. It's, it's here. He, he, you know, crushed but not destroyed. Struck down but not, what, killed, not dead. We don't know how he revived, but he did. But I don't want to end with Paul left for dead and revived. Let's go back to verse 11. Verse 11. Look how verse 11 ends, the second half. What do the people say? The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. My friends, let's listen to these words from the Nicene Creed. Speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was what? Made man. The second person of the eternal Trinity was made man. You see, they really are truth. Not just the gods have come down in the likeness of men, but no, Paul would say, no. God has come down 
in the likeness of man. And it's his full divinity and full humanity joined, inseparable. Fully God, fully man. God became man. And you know what? After Jesus went about proclaiming good news and good, doing good deeds, what happened? He was left for dead. Right? You see, Paul had disciples come around him and pray for him and grieve for him, but at Jesus' death, there's nobody. They all ran away. They abandoned him. There are no disciples grieving around him. Jesus left for dead. But you know, that's not how the story ended for Jesus either. He was not kind of revived, brought back to consciousness. No, he was dead. And he was raised to life, indestructible life, resurrection life. And, and through him, we also are as well. So I want to end with just two questions to ask all of us. Um, one was asked explicitly, and I think the other is asked implicitly. The first question is this. Do you know both the scriptures and the power of God? I mean, do you know the truth and the transformation? Or can you just ace the exam on truth? Or does your life reflect not a perfect life, but a growing life. Not a fully mature life, but a maturing life. Does your life, does my life reflect love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control? You see, I think any of us, given enough time, can ace a doctrinal study exam question, right? But that's not going to transform our life. Only the, the transforming power of the gospel, the light that illuminates us and the heat that warms our dead, cold heart. So ask yourself, do you know the scriptures and the power of God, both the truth and the transformation? And here's an indirect question. Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel. Man, I have to ask myself that question, you know, because sometimes the fear of man is bigger than the fear of God. Let's admit it. It's in all of us. And the fear of man will prove to be a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord is kept safe. So the second question is this. Are you ashamed of the gospel? Are you ashamed of the gospel? Is this church ashamed of the gospel? It's a good question to ask ourselves, you know, because the gospel destroys every aspect of human pride. Every form of human pride cannot stand the light and the heat of the gospel. So if you're like me, friends, still with vestiges of pride and arrogance, boy, the gospel may seem at first like bad news, and it is, of course, but man, it is sweet good news, isn't it? Because it changes us. It conforms us more and more into the image of Jesus. 
You see, salvation past, salvation present, and salvation future is of the Lord. Jonah found out, and he declared that, and the scriptures make it oh so clear. Salvation is of the Lord. My friends, today, let's rest in the good news that God has indeed come down to us in the likeness of man. God has indeed come to us for us and our salvation. He was made man for us. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this narrative account in the history of your church, in the history of the gospel going forward. Father, we thank you that in your good plan and providence, the gospel has made it to us. Oh, Father, would you be pleased to continue to change us more and more to reflect those kind of men and women and boys and girls who are contrite, who tremble at your word, who turn away from every reliance upon some sort of self-made strength and fully cast ourselves upon your grace and mercy. Thank you, Father, for making yourself known to us in creation. Thank you for making yourself known to us through your word. And thank you for making yourself known to us in Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. We respond and prepare ourselves.